When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I know last week, yesterday, not last week, uh, we talked, I said I didn't record uh, one of the episodes, so I want to um, do that right now, address that issue. The issue that um, I didn't record or didn't upload my sermonette for morning prayer yesterday because I didn't feel like I fully answered the big question that was looming in some folks' minds, and some of you even reached out to me, which was wonderful. I love theological questions. I love when you say, like, I don't understand that because usually if you don't understand something, I don't either, and nobody does. That's the thing about the big questions of the Bible or of life. Um, questions like probably the biggest one that you see thrown around today is if God is good and powerful, why is there suffering in the world? Why are there murders and rapes and genocide in a world where God is both good and powerful? One of those things has to be false. Either he's good, but not powerful to stop it, or he's powerful, but he's not good. And he just likes or lets all that bad stuff happen. Um, that's a classic problem that nobody has a real easy answer for. There is no easy answer for the problem of evil in the world. The subject of theodicy is the the study of the problem of evil and God's involvement in it. Where does evil come from? Was it something God created or is it the simple absence of goodness, the vacuum of goodness? Um, Christians down through the centuries and before that, um, Jewish people in that long stream of reflection on this. The book of Job is a reflection on theodicy. Why do bad things happen to people here on this planet? And what's God and God's involvement in it? You may not like Job's answer or the story's answer of God doing things behind the scenes with the devil that Job doesn't know about. Um, All of these things are attempts to stare into the mystery of God. And In no other place probably we get to do this in the times where we see God ordaining violence, violent means to accomplish God's goals, Um, which does seem to contrast with the way Jesus ministered when he was here on this earth. Jesus did not form an army, um, a militia or anything like that to violently overthrow the Romans. He made it very clear that that was not what he was here to do, even though he could. He could do that. Um, He made it very clear that is not the way he operates. And so it's easy to see that classic lie that there's a mean God in the Old Testament and a nice God in the New Testament. It's something I hear from both religious people and non-religious people often when I'm having conversations with them. This is sort of the interpretive tool, especially in a political debate. Many progressive people today like to look at evangelicals and other Catholics and and more conservative Christians as really following an Old Testament religion full of legalism and rules and harsh cruelties and the justification of violence. Um, When in fact, the God of the Old Testament is a God of love, just like the God in the New Testament is a God in love. It's the same God. According to Jesus, the God of the New Testament is the same God 
as the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the formula for God. So early on in Christianity, if you said there's a mean God in the Old Testament and a nice God in the New Testament, those are two different gods, that became a heretical teaching. Because what it did was it took the whole Old Testament and said it's basically irrelevant as a source of information about life today. Um, It was also really anti-Semitic, a way to vilify Jews and blame Jews for um, for the woes and evils of the world. If you say that the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, are evil and there's a mean God in it, um, it's easy to then justify um, discrimination and violence against Jewish people because they are propagating a violent faith. Um, the Jewish religion, the modern Jewish religion, um, today has lots of ways to talk about the violence in the Old Testament, and I invite you to explore those ways that they deal with it. For Christians, we read the Old Testament through the light and life and example of Jesus. Um, we also believe in the progress of Revelation, that in the early part of the Bible, we have God painting with a broad brush, um, God doing sky writing with an airplane, perhaps. Um, and the, the message gets much more detailed as time goes by. John Calvin called this um, God baby talks to us in the Old Testament and, and talks to us more like grown-ups as time goes by in the unfolding progress of Revelation. And not that God baby talks in all the Old Testament, the New Testament is grown-up talk, No, even in the Old Testament, we can see a series of covenants that God makes with people. God makes a covenant with Adam. God makes a covenant with Noah. God makes a covenant with Abram. God makes a covenant, you know, there's numerous covenants that God makes that have just, and Moses, um, and just have a little larger expansion of God's, the details of God's will for God's people. Um, We were reading Exodus and morning prayer, and we can see that transition in real time from a tribal group of families to a nation with a distinct identity. Um, That's happening in the book of Exodus, in the second book of the Bible. So the progress of Revelation um, just means that there's more revealed as time goes by. And so we who stand at this place in history have a lot more revealed to us. And when it comes to the violence in the Old Testament, especially the violence that is associated with the incident of the golden calf, where Moses tells the Levites to kill their neighbors, kill the men around them, the brothers, their cousins, their relatives, um, to stop this um, party that's going on, this revelry. Um, As I said yesterday, the revelry, um, we can look at it sort of like, oh, they're having a party. Yes, But they are drunk, it says very clearly. They are both eating and drinking in huge amounts, um, which means that um, there are probably sexual assaults happening in this sexual revelry that they are engaged in. Um, There is no doubt in my mind that when a whole bunch of drunk men run loose after being subjected to very strict rules about sex and who they have sex with and who they don't and can't and shouldn't, um, that, that that would not be, that that would be the case, that there would be sexual assault happening. Um, 
and perhaps other things that aren't in the text as well. But that is the situation. Um, it's not that they're just like dancing or something. Um, there was plenty of dancing that went on before the golden calf. The people of God dance when, um, when they are delivered from the Red Sea. They sing and dance. So God doesn't have a problem with singing and dancing. Um, God has a problem with, with sexual assault and uh, violating the, the norms of the community that are meant to protect people. Um, and that's what seems to be happening. So there is some grave danger afoot for the people false god worship, and this other stuff that's happening. Now, that alone, in a modern context, wouldn't justify being murdered or executed by the state, for sure. Um, And so, whatever we say about what happened in the story of Moses is not necessarily what we might say today. Um, We are in a different place in time and space and history, even though we worship the same god um, there, a lot has happened between then and now. Um, to kill your brother is the order to kill your friend and kill your neighbor. And the sons of Levi did what Moses had said. Um, Moses invokes the name of the Lord. Thus says Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, go do this. Um, he says that today you've ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord. Almost like they are a separate priesthood, um, ordained by themselves to do this violence on behalf of the Lord, each one at the cost of a son or a brother. He's saying for them to go kill their sons and their brothers and their parents, even um, fathers in this. It's all male targets. And this will be a blessing on themselves today. Um, the word is Barak, Barakah, where we get the name Barak. We had a president with this name. It means blessing. So they will bring a blessing on themselves. And so they go do this. Now, it doesn't say how many people were killed um, in this um, act. It doesn't say that. Um, Moses already killed some people by making them drink the water that he puts the gold in from the golden calf. Um, so a couple things from this about God and violence is that God never apologizes for the violence that is written in Scripture. There's never a hand-wringing moment where God says, ooh, I went a little too far there with the violence. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm not like that anymore. Um, and that could mean a couple different things. One is that um, the morality of God is not exactly like our morality in the sense that um, there is a right and wrong in the universe for sure. But um, a blanket simplistic statement about violence usually ends up being short-sighted. For instance, when your kids are fighting, you say, don't hit your brother, don't hit your sister. Stop doing that. And then when they're like seven, they go to school and they get pushed and shoved and pinched and whacked on the head with a book. And, you know, you say like, tell the teacher and tell the teacher and They're like, yeah, I tell the teacher. The teacher doesn't do anything. And you say this. You say, okay, the next time somebody pokes you, pinches you, shoves you, punches you in the stomach, you shove them back or you hit them back. Um, And that is a different message of violence than we said when they were three. Don't hit your brother. Don't hit your sister. Now we're saying there is a time and a place maybe to defend yourself from a bodily attack. Um, 
Who in the world would tell their child if you're being attacked, assaulted, especially um, in a way that um, is violating your sense of personhood, like a severe violence, not just like a, you know, bump in the hallway, but a real attack or a sexual assault. Who in the world would say, don't fight back? You know, we, we don't don't uh, resist that. We, we, we tell our kids and, you know, there is a time and place for violence um, in the defense of your personhood or in the defense of somebody else. And while we're all kind of hopeful pacifists, um, most people sort of have that line where they say that is enough. Um, it's always amazing to me that spectator pacifists in the American progressive mainline church that we love to say how bad violence always is. And then Ukraine comes along and we say, well, we should use violence there. Or the Ukrainians should use violence there against the Russian invasion. It's amazing how spectator pacifists um, become uh, violent people, or at least encouraging of violence um, overnight. There is a luxury of, of uh, spectator pacifism. I'm not talking about other forms of pacifism, but, but the pacifism that just thinks that violence has no place or is kind of icky um, is not really a Christian view. Um, Christians, including Anglican Christians that I am, have always said there is a time and place sometimes for violence um, on behalf of protecting vulnerable people. Um, in the 39 Articles, it is the only time that guns are mentioned in the prayer book. Uh, guns are mentioned in the prayer book in the 39 Articles that are printed in the historical documents. I've written an essay, an earth and altar. If you Google David Peters, earth and altar, earth and altar, um, you'll see that article there that I wrote about guns in the prayer book. Um, but the, the idea there is that um, it is the duty of all Christian men to bear arms and serve in the wars under the command of the magistrate when it is time and not to do that um, any other time. So it is a way of controlling violence, of trying to manage it in a, in a way that's accountable to the community through that malicious system that was functioning in England at the time. Thomas Cramner, who wrote, wrote the first prayer book, took up arms when there was an allegedly or suspected or the threat of invasion of England um, by the French. He got his fowling piece, his hunting rifle out and put on his hunting jacket and got on his horse to defend the land. Um, so there is a Anglican and Christian precedent for the use of violence. So when we see God using violence in the Old Testament, we cannot read it through a spectator pacifism lens. God tells the people, his people in the desert to defend themselves from attack when the Amalekites attack and other times. Use weapons, fight. Um, there were rituals for cleansing after battle. When you went out to battle, after the battle, you were to burn all your clothing um, outside the camp and wait there until your the time of impurity was over. So war is evil. War is a defilement, but there is a time and place for it. And so when God, the divine warrior, goes to war against these men who are, um, who are um, breaking the covenant, um, this is sort of in the world of, of God and the Bible, an acceptable thing to do, as much as it may be concerning to us. Um, others have seen these 
references to violence in the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, in the five books of Moses, metaphors, that these are stories that have been um, for the sake of teaching, exaggerated, not to lie or anything, but to make a point, kind of like you tell your kids, um, you know, if you touch, if you go near the stove, I'm going to slap your hand. If you put your hand near the stove, I'm going to slap your hand because a slap is a lot less painful and a lot less permanent than a severe burn on your hand. Um, I'm not saying that's a good thing to do or anything, but um, we often will sometimes do coercive things to our kids to prevent their deaths. Um, You know, who would judge a parent who grabbed their child's arm so they wouldn't run in the street? Um, even though that itself is a very violent act to grab your kid by the arm real hard, um, we would all say that's an acceptable thing to do if a child is running in the street um, and endangering themselves. So in, in that sense, um, the stories of warning, you know, we might tell our kids, don't stick your arm out of the window when you're driving because there was a kid who did that and his arm got ripped off when he went. My grandmother used to tell me that story all the time. Don't put your arms outside the car. There was a kid who was riding with his arm outside the car and, and he hit, they, they drove too close to a pole. My dear late grandmother who died a couple summers ago, I miss her a lot. She, she um, drove in such a way that she probably could knock your arm off uh, as she would swerve a road. She was one of those drift drivers, you know, that sort of drifted as she drove and talked a lot. She was from Brooklyn, New York, and had a really strong accent even to the to the day she died in her 90s. And even though she had lived in Florida for about, I don't know, 50 years or so, the Brooklyn accent was still there. And she would talk and sort of drift over the side of the road and then violently correct back straight again and... Um, you know, you could see maybe how you could lose an arm if you stuck it out the window. But we tell kids those like over-the-top stories to warn them, to scare them a little bit. And maybe that that's what's happening in these stories of the violence of against the Canaanites. Uh, we also remember that when you are trying to scare your enemies, when you're trying to show how much of a badass you are, you don't say that um, you nearly lost a fight or you don't say that you... Um, are weak in any way. You say, we crush our enemies. We kill people. We can kill people like that. We killed a lot of people last week. God can kill uh, from a distance. God can kill with lightning. God can kill with fire. He can zap you. He can smite you. Um, You want your enemies to think that you are a bunch of badasses, including your God. So that may be functioning in the stories of the Bible as well, an exaggeration of the violence in order to, to scare the enemies. Um, it's something that, um, you know, if you're in a dark alley late at night, you kind of puff your shoulders up a little bit and stand up straight and walk like you're confident. Um, (laughs) you know, that's kind of what those stories might be doing. Um, and then the other part that we must consider is that ultimately the problem of God's violence is solved in the person of Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is the most violent thing humanity could come up with happened to God. The most unjust and violent thing that has ever happened in the world happened to God. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the miscarriage of justice, 
the false accusations, the hours of tortured suffering with nails in hands and feet, and the, um, the beating before it. Um, there are probably on a scale worse things that have happened to people in history, but that's right up there. Crucifixion, rejection, false accusation, all those things are a big bundle of suffering, and it happened to God. So whatever we say about violence in the world and violence done by God or the suffering of the world that God could stop but doesn't, we must say that also about the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross, that God suffered on the cross, that God knows what it's like to die, that God knows what it's like to be tortured. Um, And so the world is never the same again because of what Jesus did. And to me, I read the stories of violence in the Old Testament through that lens, that God had not had that experience yet. And therefore, the violence that God does in the Old Testament um, is part of that unfolding revelation that ultimately culminates in the futility of violence on the cross, that an innocent man is killed for the sins of the whole world, to try to assuage people's suffering in the moment, showing that capital punishment even doesn't really work at all. It doesn't change the nature of reality after Jesus has done what he has done on the cross. And so I read the stories of violence in the Old Testament on those different levels. Um, There is no one Christian answer for this. I think part of our task as Christians is to read these stories and ponder them and think about them and stare into the abyss of human suffering and violence, knowing that God has gone there into that God has gone into that abyss ahead of us. Jesus has already gone down there. He already knows what's down there. And so when we stare down there into the abyss of violence and suffering, stuff that's been done to us and stuff that's been done to people we love and care about, we know that in that abyss, down there in the dark, Jesus is there. There is no place we can go where he is not present with us. Amen. I hope if you have some questions about this, you contact me, runnermonk at gmail.com or through the Anchor app. I'd love to hear from you. Exodus 33 is um, a transition point in the story of Moses and God's people. Um, The golden calf incident uh, that we talked about yesterday was devastating on a number of levels. Um, It was a breach of trust between God and God's people. Um, It was literally Moses goes away and bad things happen. Um, and God says right before Moses comes down off the mountain, I'm going to wipe this people out. I'm going to kill every one of them, every single one of them, men, women, children, old and young. Um, and I'm going to start a new nation from you, Moses. I will restart my program. Um, to save the world through this people, but it'll be a different people. It'll be Moses' family and his descendants, not the people that I rescued from Egypt. Um, 
And Moses argues with God at this moment. He begs God, don't do this. Kill me, but don't kill them. Um, Moses is a priest. He is the, of the tribe of Levi. And he is playing this mediating role in his priesthood. Um, as Christians, we believe that there is one God and one mediator between God and humans, the man, Jesus Christ. I'm quoting from the New Testament there. There is one God and one mediator between God and humans. That man is Jesus Christ. Um, no human being needs to mediate your relationship with God. You can have a direct relationship with God. But um, in that, following Jesus, as Jesus is the mediator, we realize that Jesus ultimately stands between us and God. We know God through Jesus. Jesus reveals to us the mystery of God, not only because he is pointing to God, the Father, praying to God the Father, when he's asked, how do, you, how do we pray? He says, our Father who art in heaven, your Father, my Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, um, but also because he is God incarnate. He is, in, um, he is not half man, half God. Uh, the early Christian church worked this out. There were many different theories of who Jesus was. They took the material from Holy Scripture and the birth narratives and the Annunciation and said, what is Jesus? Ontologically is the word. What is he? Um, kind of like asking, what's the difference between a human and a cat? who I'm holding here. What's the difference between a human and a cat? We're both very similar in a lot of ways. Both mammals, both, uh, both you know, like relaxing and like food and stuff like that. Um, we both have need to eat and all those things, need to sleep. Um, and humans and cats are pretty similar, but there are some very big differences between humans and cats that are technically biological differences, but also ontological differences um, in the sense of what is the being of a cat? What is the true nature of a cat? What is the true nature of a human? And the early church worked this out by saying that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Um, and if you try to separate his humanity from his godness, you are going to end up in a place where you're not he's not either God or not human. If you try to dissect parts of him being God and parts of him being human, um, that will always result in an imbalance of belief where um, he just becomes God in a bod, you know, like sort of like a demon possession, except with God um, in a human, or he becomes a, an angel or just an illusion of a human that God is walking around in, in human skin or in an illusion of humanity or something like that. Um, so the early church worked out that Jesus is the mediator because he is both God and human, um, that he is able to stand in that place that nobody else could stand in. But the priests of the Old Testament, like Moses and Aaron and the Levites who follow them um, and administer the temple, um, they also are part of this mediating work of redemption. They are they are the ones responsible for the sacrificial system in the temple, um, which is a way, a means of salvation. The sacrificial system in the temple pointed to the future redemption that would come through the Messiah, Jesus. And so the priests of the Old Testament are always pointing to the salvation found.
found in Christ. Whether they knew it or not, that's up for debate, and you can have your own idea about that. But they were pointing to that sacrificial system. Um, And today, the priests that we have today, um, the priesthood of today, is one where priests point to that, to Jesus. We point to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And we reenact that sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in the, the Eucharistic feast. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, we say. We don't say Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us just once, even though it did happen just once. We say Christ, our Passover, we don't say will be sacrificed for us someday. No, we say Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us right here, right now, in this moment. And that mediating work of the priesthood is still around. Um, It is most um, notable for me in the Good Friday prayers, a day where we don't typically have the Eucharist. The Eucharist is not celebrated on Good Friday. And the final prayer of the Good Friday service with no Eucharist is simply this, Lord Jesus Christ, set your cross between... between, uh, Set your cross between the destruction of the world and our souls. I'm paraphrasing that a little bit. But that's the priestly prayer on Good Friday is, please, Jesus, put your cross between us and the judgment that we rightfully deserve for being part of the sinfulness of this world, for being part of the crucifixion of your son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're begging for on Good Friday that the cross of Jesus will be that sacrifice. And so Moses is a priest of his people. He is pleading on behalf of his people, pleading for the mercy of God, pleading for that future redemption that's coming. And he's doing that in chapter 33 still. Every day he goes out to to this tent of meeting where he talks to God as a man talks with his friend. Um. Before that, before it says that he does that, it says the people stop wearing ornaments. We have very little details of the clothing of people in the in this time period, or what they looked like, or how they did their hair. But here's a detail: um, when they were enslaved in Egypt, they wore earrings. These are the earrings that they took out of their ears and threw into the fire, and out came a golden calf, as Aaron said. Um, they had a lot of gold that they stole or spoiled from the Egyptians. Um, When they left Egypt, they went to their neighbors, their Egyptian neighbors, and said, give me that. And the neighbors gave it to them. Please get out of here. Take whatever you want. This was God providing for God's people, spoiling the Egyptians. Um, Over the last 2,000 years of history, Christians have seen this as a metaphor for how we take the good ideas in the world around us, in the culture around us, um, and use them for God's glory. Um, This was first done with philosophy. Many early Christian philosophers, many early Christian leaders, pastors, bishops, were very hesitant to interact with the contemporary philosophy or the ancient philosophers of the day, like Plato and Aristotle and others. And other Christians came along and said, you know what? We can spoil the Egyptians, just like the people of God did when they left Egypt. If there's something good that a philosopher says, that lines up with what Jesus has said and God has said in scripture, we can say it too. There's a lot of treasures in philosophy. I am sort of on a journey right now reading some Stoic stuff. Um, The Stoics were 
wise people. They weren't right about everything, but there's some good wisdom there to glean and to appropriate and to take and use and to baptize and to um, bring into the Christian church, I believe. But um, always, always with the fact that the person of Jesus is the center of our faith, not a philosopher or anybody else. But this was the spoiling of the Egyptians. They had these earrings. We know from the Old Testament, from the law of Moses, that when you made someone into an enslavement situation, which the people of God in the Old Testament had rules on how to make people enslaved, whether they were captured in war or something else. It's a one of the um, more difficult to understand parts of the Bible and how those laws worked. Um, but one of the things they would do is would poke a hole in their ear. This was a practice done in Egypt as well, that slaves had earrings that they would wear. And you can see how over the hundreds of years of their captivity, these marks of slavery that were marks of shame and servitude became decorations. They started wearing earrings, men and women, but mostly men. Um, and these earrings that were symbols of their enslavement became symbols of pride, symbols of jewelry and, and wealth even, um, as they leave Egypt. But they do away with these. They are dropping their enslaved identity in the desert. They are learning that they can live off the manna of the land. They can live off their community. They can live off the love that they have for each other and that God has for them. They don't need a golden calf to save them anymore. They don't need the gods of the Egyptians or the food of the Egyptians to live. God is forging them into a new people. God is saying to them, I am enough. I am enough. This is what God's love song to his people always is, that I'm enough. Um, and that message is still true today, that God is enough. God is enough for you, even though it may seem that God will not be enough. God is enough for us. That doesn't mean we don't need people in our life. Jesus never called anybody to be alone. And we need human community. We need love from other people. Sometimes we need someone to tell us that God loves us or that we are loved or we are worthy of love. We need that kind of affirmation in our life. We all do. Um, by saying, by God saying, I am enough, he was not saying to disband the community of the people of God. He was not saying not to follow Moses. He was not saying, you know, don't post guards at the edge of your camp or anything like that. What he was saying was when it comes to your ultimate destiny, your safety, your security, your love, all the things that you need to function in life, God will provide that for you. You can trust God and any counterfeit that comes along, any other shortcut to that provision is always not from God. God always has provision for us. God will meet our needs, emotional needs, all of our needs that we have. Um, God will meet those needs. And, but trusting God is really hard. It was hard to trust God in 3000 BC, 2000 BC, 1000 BC, and it's hard to trust God in 2022. Nothing has changed when it, when it comes to the difficulty of trusting God, because every one of us comes at it for the first time um, as a new creation in Christ. And we learn to trust God in the terms that we know, in the way that we know. And that is the spiritual journey. 
I hope this church is a place that encourages you to trust God, to trust God, to trust what God can provide for you. Um, Because ultimately that is what God does when he meets with Moses in that tent. He talks to him like he talks to his friend. That's the God we worship. And friends don't always have easy conversations. Sometimes friends have difficult conversations. Um, But there is always that trust there that this person will be there for me when I need them. And that is what God is for us and does for us, especially through the person of Jesus Christ, who will never leave us or forsake us. Amen. Song of Moses today, I want to sing a hymn, um, lead in a hymn that is written from chapter 33 of Exodus, Rock of Ages. I think it's in our hymnal. Something tells me it might not be. I'll have to do it from memory. Um, but this hymn is about this experience that God had with Moses when Moses says, I want to see you. And God says, if you see my face, you'll die. So they work it out where um, Moses will only see, um, as the King James says, his hinder quarters. Um, He'll only see the back of God as God passes by. And God puts him in the cleft of the rock. um, And then he passes by. And Moses gets a glimpse of God. Um, We, as Christians, know that we have seen God in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, the, The picture that Jesus left us is the Eucharist, his body and blood, the bread and the wine. That is what God looks like for us today. That is the picture of God um, that we have, that we can see with our own eyes and the eyes of faith. But this experience with Moses was a precursor. It was a glimpse of what Jesus would come to do, that Jesus would show us his face. Um, There are so many references in in the Gospels to Jesus looking at someone. Jesus saw him. He looked at him. Um, And this gaze of Jesus is the gaze of love. It is the gaze and it is the vision and face of what God looks like when God sees us. So God sees you today and uh, is hiding you in the cleft of the rock and covering us with his hand. Um, And then he passes by and we don't get, and Moses doesn't get to see God's face, but we do, we do. So trust that today. Um, 685 is the hymn, Rock of Ages. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side that flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Should my tears forever flow, should my zeal no longer know, all for sin could not atone, thou must save and thou alone. In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyelids close in death, 
When I rise to worlds unknown, and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. So if you need that song this week, I invite you to find your hymnal 685 and sing it out loud. Um, it's amazing how those kinds of hearing things out loud can help. Sometimes. Father David? Yes. I, I, Lord God, almighty and everlasting Father, you have brought us in safety to this new day. Preserve us with your mighty power that we may not fall into sin nor be overcome by adversity. In all we do, direct us to the fulfilling of your purpose. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And a prayer for mission. O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh, and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You can see the the law being worked out in real time, the Ten Commandments being written on the tablets, but these other law codes are written down too. They're spoken at first, but I'm sure somebody was writing them down. Um, It's really hard to have laws that are just sort of word of mouth. And so we see the development of literacy. If you go and go to any ancient history museum basement um, in the storage areas. You know, they only exhibit about 10% of their collections. And if you go down the basement, you'll find just crates and crates of clay tablets from the Sumerian period, uh, Akkadian, you name it. All those ancient uh, societies kept a lot of records on clay tablets, and they're very well preserved to this day. Uh, And most of them are receipts. That's the most common thing that we have from the ancient world is receipts. The other thing we have in great abundance is law codes. Not great abundance. There's more receipts than there are law codes. Like, you know, receipts for selling something or transfer of property or deeds or things like that. But the other thing is law codes. The the, uh, Code of Hammurabi is known to us because it's it was preserved on a stone tablet. Um, it was written out on, in stone and then copied. And that's why we have it, is because it was written in stone. So law codes uh, have come down to us, and there were a lot of them. And this one is very detailed. So somebody was probably writing this down. We can see that transition to a literary society and culture. Um, you write, only write down the things you really need to know and passed down. And a law code is one of those things. And the Lord says to Moses, write these words. Write these words. Moses uh, was able to write, um, according to the text. Um, Anyone that comes along and says that people back then couldn't read or write or something, ridiculous. Egyptians could write, and Moses was educated and brought up by the Egyptians. And so whatever language he's writing in, we don't really know, 
um, eventually becomes Hebrew. And if you study Hebrew today, if you study biblical Hebrew, the language this book is written in, Book of Exodus, um, it's very similar to modern Hebrew. Um, The revival of modern Hebrew in the modern era is kind of a linguistic miracle. Um, It's not quite the same language, but most of the words are the same. And uh, most of the ways they're, they're, uh, most of the sentences are constructed um, so that as the old joke goes, Moses could walk into McDonald's in in Jerusalem and order off the menu. Um, It's not quite that easy probably, but um, it's amazing how because of the Bible's staying power in in Judaism, um, we still have a language today that's being spoken um, by people that, you know, would be able to read this, these texts. And this, this um, you can see the detail of um, law goes down to whether you can eat a cheeseburger or not. Um, you shall not boil the kid in its mother's milk. So putting a dairy product with a meat product in the same dish is illegal. Um, I was running with a lawyer today for about 10 miles, and we talked. I run with a lot of lawyers. For some reason, they're into running a lot. And um, we talked about how religion, for the most part, at least Christianity in the modern era, has dropped uh, legalism. We see it as kind of a bad thing. Um, We don't really sit around in our Bible studies and talk about law codes that much, except for maybe in a historical context. But the thing that um, most Christians and, and Jewish people still today do is talk about laws. Like, is it lawful to do this? What does the law say? Well, here's the law of Moses. What does the law say? As Christians, we believe that Jesus reinterpreted the law of Moses and fulfilled it, but didn't do away with it, didn't abolish it. In fact, he said, not one uh, pen mark of the law will ever be done away with. So this law is something we still study. Um, today, and and take seriously to say that all this is bad is ridiculous. Um, this is really from God. It might cause us to scratch our heads from time to time about why God would make a law about certain things, but um, we can see that this is that the people of God are being formed into a distinctive identity. Um, the first one that opens the womb is mine. God says, all your male livestock, um, all your, the firstborn cow, the firstborn sheep, the firstborn donkey, you will redeem with a lamb. Um, and if you will not redeem it, you'll break its neck. All the firstborn sons you shall redeem. This, we see this in the life of Jesus. When Jesus is a baby, his parents go to the temple and they take, because they're poor, they buy two turtle doves. And they redeem his life as the first child to open the womb. Um, They buy back his life. And this is why they do it, because that's what the law says. It seems like this is a much older practice than um, even Judaism, or at least the law of Moses. It goes back to an older older, uh, tradition. We can see it in the death of the firstborn of Egypt. Uh, We can see it Um, that God ultimately, when he really wants to get the Egyptians' attention, he kills the firstborn animals and children of Egypt. Um, And that is the ultimate uh, message to let his own people go. Of course, the people of God put blood 
over the lintels of their door with a Passover lamb. And that blood stands as a marker for the angel of death to pass by. But the fact that those lives, the firstborn life belongs to God, um, seems to be much older than this law. Um, And if you're a firstborn, any firstborn children here today? Do you have any firstborns? Um, I am. Paul is a firstborn. Any others today? Is Barbara a firstborn? I can't. Yes, I am. You are. Yes, I am. I mean, statistically, there are more firstborn children, Jason and Jason Casey. Yes. Um, statistically, there are more firstborn children in the world. And Azura, firstborn too. All right. Um, there are more than any other number because, you know, if a family has one child, that's a firstborn child. And if a family has 10 children, they produce one too. So um, there are a lot of firstborn children running around. And you know, if you're a firstborn child, it's different. Everything's different for you. There's no like growing up like a normal kid. You're like given responsibility from day one and you're expected to be much older than you are and all those things that come with being a firstborn child. Um, and And it's also the fact that firstborn children inherited a much larger share of their parents' property when the parents died. That's why there's always that responsibility put. But then there's this other, like, I guess we could say darker tradition of the firstborn child, that the life must be redeemed, that um, all of life is a gift from God. All our lives are a gift from God. And every child born in this world, especially that first child that a woman bears into this world, a person bears into this world, um, is a gift from God and a special and even life defying way. And that is recognized in this tradition. In the Anglican world, in Episcopal Church, we have a practice called the churching of women. Um, We don't call it that anymore. We call it the thanksgiving for the birth of a child, um, where after a childbirth, the the mother comes into church and um, there in in that place um, gives thanks to God for the birth of that child. We've done it, I think, once in our church that I can remember. Um, and it's a good practice to do, to give thanks to God for this. But this is the tradition. Um, and it's, it involves blood. It involves the, the shedding of blood of these animals to mark this buying back from God, redemption. We can see that all of salvation history is sort of being, being scripted at this point. It's being told. And it's like the, the, ma- the, the magic from the dawn of time that Aslan talks about when he is sacrificed on the stone table. He says there's a magic from the dawn of time that, that a life must be given for a life, um, that life must be, must, must give for, must be sacrificed for another life to be saved. And this is the story of Jesus writ large, right in this law code, that the story of Jesus is that his life is given for our lives, that he is a substitution for our deaths, that his death is a substitution for our our death, that he is the true Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb that spares our lives. He is this child or this this sheep, this lamb that redeems us from our just consequences. Um, Then the Sabbath stuff, six days shall you work, and then on the seventh you shall rest, even when there's there's a lot of work to be done. The Sabbath uh, law is that no matter what, there is very few exceptions. Um, 
just because you're busy, just because it's tax season, just because it's harvest time, um, all those things doesn't mean you can break the Sabbath. Um, You have to keep it because God knows that humans will come up with any excuse to break whatever rule we think we can break. Um, uh, No one shall covet your land when you appear before the Lord, that every uh, man must go to Jerusalem three times a year or Shiloh, originally with the tabernacle. And then we get into the horns of Moses. Um, If you go to, I think it's the Vatican, or wherever the uh, statue of Michelangelo's Moses is, you will see that he has horns growing out of his head. They're kind of stubby little horns. Um, And you'll see this in a lot of old paintings of Moses, that he is pictured with horns. And it comes from this very text, uh, Exodus 34. When he comes down from Mount Sinai with the covenant tablets of two tablets of the covenant in his hand, he did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now, um, the word horns is used here. It's translated the skin of his face shone in English, but in Hebrew, um, there is an indication that it uses the word word karen um, for horn, that another translation would be, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets in his hand, he did not know that he had horns of light or that he had horns coming out of his head. <laughs> there are several ways to translate this. And many uh, scholars, including Jewish uh, readers of this text, felt that he came down with horns. That's why they had to cover his face um, and cover his horns so that people wouldn't think he was weird. Um, I don't know. I think the horns of light, that they're like beams of light coming off of his face that are very hard to look at. That's why they cover his face. I think that's a decent translation. But we always like leave a little room for that um, horn interpretation as well. Um, Kind of weird, weird stuff in the Bible, always. Um, Horns of light, horns that are like goat's horns. Um, Hard to know. Uh, But he puts a veil over his face. This mediation of the relationship with God is one that we see in the New Testament as well. That Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, his great passage on love, love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious. Um, At the end, he says, we see through a mirror darkly, and dimly. It's really hard to see God. It's hard to see Jesus in this life. Um, But soon, one day, we'll see face to face. The veil will be taken away, and that dim view of who God is will be taken away. And it's a echo of this text here. Um, Moses talks to God the way a man talks with his friend. And that is not just like about Moses, but it's also an invitation to us Do you talk to God the way you talk to your friends? Um, Unfiltered, raw. You know, if you, if I hope that you can talk with us here in a very honest way and say, I'm having a terrible day. This is a terrible week. Um, There are times when you have to tell your friends that. You have to say, it's really happening. It doesn't mean that you're asking for like anyone to solve it or anything like that. But sometimes we need others, other people, our friends, to acknowledge our suffering, acknowledge our pain. 
And Moses does that with God. He talks to God the way we talk to our friends. That is what the invitation to a relationship with God is. There have been times where I've been honest with God about how I felt. And those are the times I've felt the closest to God um, in those times of great honesty. Sometimes you have to do it by yourself, um, alone. Um, Sometimes you can do it with other people in prayer. Um, I hope that you can pray to God honestly the way you talk to your friends, because that's the invitation that God gives to us. Amen. The Song of Moses. I will sing to the Lord, for he is lofty and uplifted. The horse and its rider has he hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my refuge. The Lord has become my savior. This is my God, and I will praise him. The God of my people, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a mighty warrior. Yahweh is his name. The chariots of Pharaoh and his army has he hurled into the sea. The finest of those who bear armor have been drowned in the Red Sea. The fathomless deep has overwhelmed them. They sank into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in might. Your right hand, O Lord, has overthrown the enemy. Who can be compared with you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, awesome in renown, and worker of wonders? You stretch forth your right hand, the earth swallowed them up. With your constant love you led the people you redeemed. With your might you brought them in safety to your holy dwelling. You will bring them in and plant them on the mount of your possession. The resting place you have made for yourself, O Lord. The sanctuary, O Lord, that your hand has established. The Lord shall reign forever and forever. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. The Creed is on 96. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord be with you and also with you. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Today is May 13th, the day the church remembers Frances Perkins. Um, Really fascinating story about her. She was the first woman to serve as a president of the... She was the first woman to serve a president of the United States as a member of the cabinet, Frances Perkins. 
She was born in Boston in 1880, educated at Mount Holyoke College and Columbia University. Columbia, uh, historically, is an Episcopal school, the Episcopal Church. Um, there is still, I believe, an Episcopal priest that sits on the board. A young Alexander Hamilton was a student at Columbia when he left to serve in the military, uh, the Continental Army, and he marched from Columbia over to St. Paul's Chapel out there by Trinity Wall Street on Wall Street. Wall Street used to be the wall of safety, uh, protecting the early Dutch settlers there. And they drilled right by St. Paul's Chapel there. And uh, he's buried there, um, Alexander Hamilton, right there on that street today. Um, But Perkins was, this is many years later in 1880, Perkins was a passionate advocate of the social problems of the day occasioned by the continuing efforts of industrialization and urbanization. Um, In the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, the United States had a very large wave of immigrants from Eastern Europe and many other places as well. Um, This is the time my ancestors came here um, from Lithuania and Russia. And Um, During this time, uh, there was just so many social problems with immigrants getting jobs in the living conditions, as you all know, um, from that time period. And she, as one of the um, more connected and educated women and people of that time, felt a great responsibility to create a society where people could um, not just survive, but really thrive. And this... um, it was, it was driven by Christianity. All the mainline denominations, Methodists, Episcopalians, um, were in on this um, at that time. As a young adult, she discovered the Episcopal Church. I guess she grew up in another church and was confirmed at Church of the Holy Spirit in Lake Forest, Illinois, in 1905. And she remained a faithful Episcopalian for the remainder of her life. Um, she moved to New York and became an advocate for industrial safety and a persistent voice for the reform of what she believed were unjust labor laws. This work got the attention of two of New York's governors, Governor Al Smith and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, in whose state administration she took part. Franklin Roosevelt was a lifelong Episcopalian. His home church was St. James in Hyde Park, New York. Um, It's still there today. And uh, his family, a lot of his uh, reforms and New Deal, I believe, were driven by his commitment to social justice that he learned from Jesus in the Episcopal Church. President Roosevelt appointed her to a cabinet post as Secretary of Labor, a position she would hold for 12 years. As Secretary of Labor, she would have a major role in shaping the New Deal legislation. During the Great Depression, as you know, um, The New Deal was a way of giving people jobs and work and money so they could eat. And many of our state and national parks were built by the New Deal. Here in Pflugerville, um, if you go to the field, the football stadium, um, you can, that field across from the football stadium was a um, New Deal work camp during the Great Depression where uh, workers there built the Rock Gym, which you can see in Pflugerville. And they worked on agricultural pro- uh, 
agricultural projects. Um, if you drive around the hill country of Texas or the hill country in, in this area too as well, the Blackland Prairie area, sometimes you'll see um, fields that are not being, some of them are plowed and have crops in them, some don't, but they'll have little like ridges and rows, like sort of mounds in the field. And those are still standing um, irrigation uh, mounds and channels built from people in, that worked in the New Deal. Uh, mostly young men um, employed, but also artists and many women were employed in the New Deal uh, Works Project Administration. So it was a way to, to really help people survive during um, this, after the stock market crash. And, she, and Frances Perkins was a major architect of that. Um, she established the Social Security Program, um, which um, was revolutionary at the time and now seems pretty standard um, for most industrialized nations, but um, that was her doing. During her years of public service, Frances Perkins depended upon her faith, her life of prayer, and the guidance of her church for support. She needed to assist that she and support that she needed to assist the United States and its leadership to face the enormous problems of the time. During her time as Secretary of Labor, she would take time away from her duties on a monthly basis and make a retreat with the All Saints Sisters of the Poor in nearby Catonsville, Maryland. She spoke publicly of how the Incarnation informed her conviction that humans ought to work with God to create a just Christian social order. If you believe that every person is made in the image of God, then we ought to do everything we can for everyone to be able to thrive in this world and be supported. Even people that are sick, even people that are poor, even people that commit crimes, even people that um, we may not like to be around. We, we as Christians believe that, that everyone is made in the image of God, and that shapes the way we think about what a good society and a good community and a good nation is. Following her public service, she became a professor of industrial and labor relations at Cornell. She remained, an acti she remained active in teaching social justice advocacy and in the mission of the Episcopal Church. She was an eloquent example of lay ministry, writing that the special vocation of the laity is to conduct and carry on the worldly and secular affairs of modern society in order that all men may be maintained in health and decency. She died in New York on May 14th, 1965. Um, and I think her legacy shows what the job of a lay person in the Episcopal Church is to do. If you're a lay person in the Episcopal Church, your job, your vocation in life is to take what you learn in church into your job and do your job in light of the, the life of Jesus Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Um, and that is, we, Episcopalians and Anglicans believe that we ought to be as involved as we possibly can in the life of the community around us. We do not retreat from that, that world that God has put us in. We get as involved as we can. We serve in the military. We serve in politics. We serve in industry. We serve in, um, in the school system. We, school, we serve in the medical community. Um, we serve in business. Whatever, wherever God puts us, that is the place that we live out our faith, not to create a separate world for just Christians where we have like a perfect world or something. We live in the real world, bringing our faith into it. And um, that's one thing I love about this church. And Francis Perkins shows us how to do that. Loving God, we bless your name for Francis Perkins, 
who in faithfulness to her baptism sought to build a society in which all may live in health and decency. Help us, following her example and in union with her prayers, to contend tirelessly for justice and for the protection of all, that we may be faithful followers of Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God forever and ever. Amen. And we pray a colic for Friday. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. In a prayer for mission, O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth, and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold, pour out your Spirit upon all flesh, and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today is May 13th, the day the church remembers Francis Perkins. Um, really fascinating story about her. She was the first woman to serve as a president of the... She was the first woman to serve a president of the United States as a member of the cabinet, Frances Perkins. She was born in Boston in 1880, educated at Mount Holyoke College and Columbia University. Columbia, uh, historically, is an Episcopal school, the Episcopal Church. Um, there is still, I believe, an Episcopal priest that sits on the board. A young Alexander Hamilton was a student at Columbia. When he left to serve in the military, uh, the Continental Army, and he marched from Columbia over to St. Paul's Chapel out there by Trinity Wall Street on Wall Street. Wall Street used to be the wall of safety, uh, protecting the early Dutch settlers there. And they drilled right by St. Paul's Chapel there. And uh, he's buried there, um, Alexander Hamilton, right there on that street today. Um, but Perkins was, this is many years later in 1880, Perkins was a passionate advocate of the social problems of the day occasioned by the continuing efforts of industrialization and urbanization. Um, in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, the United States had a very large wave of immigrants from Eastern Europe and many other places as well. Um, this is the time my ancestors came here um, from Lithuania and Russia. And um, during this time, uh, it, there was just so many social problems with immigrants getting jobs in the living conditions, as you all know, um, from that time period. And she, as one of the um, more connected and educated women and per people of that time, felt a great responsibility to create a society where people could um, not just survive, but really thrive. And this... Um, it was, it was driven by Christianity. All the mainline denominations, Methodists, Episcopalians, um, were in on this um, at that time. As a young adult, she discovered the Episcopal Church. I guess she grew up in another church and was confirmed at Church of the Holy Spirit 
in Lake Forest, Illinois, in 1905. And she remained a faithful Episcopalian for the remainder of her life. Um, she moved to New York and became an advocate for industrial safety and a persistent voice for the reform of what she believed were unjust labor laws. This work got the attention of two of New York's governors, Governor Al Smith and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, in whose state administration she took part. Franklin Roosevelt was a, a lifelong Episcopalian. His home church was St. James in Hyde Park, New York. That's um, still there today. And uh, his family, a lot of his uh, reforms and New Deal, I believe, were driven by his commitment to social justice that he learned from Jesus in the Episcopal Church. President Roosevelt appointed her to a cabinet post as Secretary of Labor, a position she would hold for 12 years. As Secretary of Labor, she would have a major role in shaping the New Deal legislation. During the Great Depression, as you know, um, the New Deal was a way of giving people jobs and work and money so they could eat. And many of our state and national parks were built by the New Deal. Here in Pflugerville, um, if you go to the field, the football stadium, um, you can that field across from the football stadium was a um, New Deal work camp during the Great Depression where uh, workers there built the Rock Gym, which you can see in Pflugerville, and they worked on agricultural, pro uh, agricultural projects. Um, if you drive around the hill country of Texas or the hill country and, and this area too as well, the Blackland Prairie area, sometimes you'll see um, fields that are not being, some of them are plowed and have crops in them, some don't, but they'll have little like ridges and rows, like sort of mounds in the field. And those are still standing um, irrigation uh, mounds and channels built from people in, that worked in the New Deal. Uh, mostly young men um, employed, but also artists and many women were employed in the New Deal uh, Works Project Administration. So it was a way to, to really help people survive during um, this, after the stock market crash. And, and Frances Perkins was a major architect of that. Um, she established the Social Security program, um, which um, was revolutionary at the time and now seems pretty standard um, for most industrialized nations, but um, that was her doing. During her years of public service, Frances Perkins depended upon her faith, her life of prayer, and the guidance of her church for support. She needed to assist that she and support that she needed to assist the United States and its leadership to face the enormous problems of the time. During her time as Secretary of Labor, she would take time away from her duties on a monthly basis and make a retreat with the All Saints Sisters of the Poor in nearby Catonsville, Maryland. She spoke publicly of how the incarnation informed her conviction that humans ought to work with God to create a just Christian social order. If you believe that every person is made in the image of God, then we ought to do everything we can for everyone to be able to thrive in this world and be supported. Even people that are sick, even people that are poor, even people that commit crimes, even people that um, we may not like to be around. We, we as Christians believe that, that everyone is made in the image of God, and that shapes the way we think about what a good society and a good community and a good nation is.
Following her public service, she became a professor of industrial and labor relations at Cornell. She remained, acti- she remained active in teaching, social justice advocacy, and in the mission of the Episcopal Church. She was an eloquent example of lay ministry, writing that the special vocation of the laity is to conduct and carry on the worldly and secular affairs of modern society in order that all men may be maintained in health and decency. She died in New York on May 14th. 1965. Um, and I think her legacy shows what the job of a lay person in the Episcopal Church is to do. If you're a lay person in the Episcopal Church, your job, your vocation in life is to take what you learn in church into your job and do your job in light of the, the life of Jesus Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Um, and that is, we, Episcopalians and Anglicans believe that we ought to be as involved as we possibly can in the life of the community around us. We do not retreat from that, that world that God has put us in. We get as involved as we can. We serve in the military. We serve in politics. We serve in industry. We serve in, um, in the school system. We, school, we serve in the medical community. Um, we serve in business. Whatever, wherever God puts us, that is the place that we live out our faith, not to create a separate world, for just Christians where we have like a perfect world or something. We live in the real world, bringing our faith into it. And um, that's one thing I love about this church. And Francis Perkins shows us how to do that. Loving God, we bless your name for Francis Perkins, who in faithfulness to her baptism sought to build a society in which all may live in health and decency. Help us following her example and in union with her prayers to contend tirelessly for justice and for the protection of all, that we may be faithful followers of Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God forever and ever. Amen. And we pray a colic for Friday. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. In a prayer for mission, O God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth and sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Song of Moses. I will sing to the Lord, for he is lofty and uplifted. The horse and its rider has he hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my refuge. The Lord has become my Savior. This is my God, and I will praise him, the God of my people, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a mighty warrior. Yahweh is his name. The chariots of Pharaoh and his army has he hurled into the sea. The finest of those who bear armor have been drowned in the Red Sea. The fathomless deep has overwhelmed them. They sank into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in might. Your right hand, O Lord, has overthrown the enemy. Who can be compared with you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, awesome in renown, and worker of wonders, 
You stretched forth your right hand. The earth swallowed them up. With your constant love, you led the people you redeemed. With your might, you brought them in safety to your holy dwelling. You will bring them in and plant them on the mount of your possession. The resting place you have made for yourself, O Lord. The sanctuary, O Lord, that your hand has established. The Lord shall reign forever and forever. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. The Creed is on 96. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord be with you and also with you. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Song of Moses. I will sing to the Lord, for he is lofty and uplifted. The horse and its rider as he hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my refuge. The Lord has become my Savior. This is my God, and I will praise him, the God of my people, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a mighty warrior. Yahweh is his name. The chariots of Pharaoh and his army has he hurled into the sea. The finest of those who bear armor have been drowned in the Red Sea. The fathomless deep has overwhelmed them. They sank into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in might. Your right hand, O Lord, has overthrown the enemy. Who can be compared with you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, awesome in renown, and worker of wonders? You stretch forth your right hand. The earth swallowed them up. With your constant love, you led the people you redeemed. With your might, you brought them in safety to your holy dwelling. You will bring them in and plant them on the mount of your possession, the resting place you have made for yourself, O Lord, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hand has established. The Lord shall reign forever and forever. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. The Creed is on 96. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. 
On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord be with you, and also with you. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.